0: We invite you to John's Gospel, chapter 3. We'll read the first eight verses. trust it is a familiar text to most of you who are Bible students and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very unique narrative or conversation of our Lord with a man named Nicodemus. John 3, reading at verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. There is a great irony that I find in this narrative with Nicodemus, which goes all the way through verse 21, where the red lettering ends, and then Jesus goes to another place in verse 22. And that irony is that in these 21 verses of narrative here, that John 3.16 is the popular verse of all of this, and for the majority of its usage is grossly misapplied, being interpreted to mean something that it's not. And the verses that lead up to John 3.16 are not as popular preceding it, and the verses that follow after are not as popular as John 3.16. This tells us several things. Number one, we would observe that we all have a natural tendency, whether it be the Bible or anything else in life, when presented with a whole, to pick out the part that we like the most, the part that is most appealing. And we also tend to neglect the part that is unappealing. And I think that's exactly what has happened with the majority of people who have embraced John 3.16. It has almost become the universal verse, if there is such a thing, from the Bible. And I would then emphasize the need to always, when it comes to the Bible or spiritual things, to embrace the whole and not to be guilty of picking and choosing, to embrace the appealing and shun the unappealing. And in fact, if this were done here, we would see that the first verses leading up to John 3.16. The part we're speaking about today in the first eight verses deal with what we would call the new birth or being born again and if that were understood as Jesus taught it and elsewhere in scripture there would not be the universal misinterpretation of John 3.16. Likewise, the verses that follow after John 3, 16, particularly verses 17 through 21, speak of the natural hereditary depravity of mankind. And that is not very popular, even with many people who are Christians. But if that were properly understood then we would not have this universal misinterpretation of John 3.16. And let the record be clear, I love John 3.16. I do not dislike it because others misapply it, but I am burdened that so much is taken from its, mis- from its meaning as any scriptural verse and misapply it. But when we understand what it means to be born again and how man is so depraved and dead in trespasses and sin and loves darkness rather than light, there's no way with you can come, that you can come up with the popular teaching from John 3:16 that God loves everybody and is trying to save the whole world. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. But I would say to you when the new birth is understood and the deadness of trespasses and sin of the natural depravity of humanity is understood, then John 3.16 stands out more beautiful than any other view anybody has because salvation indeed is miraculous and of the Lord and if the Lord doesn't accomplish it nobody would ever come to Christ and be saved. So today our subject is the new birth and we want to begin by speaking to you on the importance of the new birth and I do not believe the importance of the new birth can be overemphasized. In fact looking at Jesus' own words here I think will back me up on that, in that three times he repeats the necessity of being born again. So the importance of the new birth lies in its absolute necessity, according to Jesus' own words. Three times in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7, Jesus says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Ye must be born again. These are our Savior's own words. Obviously, you can see what he said is absolute. It is black and white. There are no exceptions, alternatives, or misunderstandings about what he said about the new birth. I trust that you understand what I mean by the new birth and what it means to be born again, but in case someone does not, and perhaps someone may not today that is hearing me somewhere via audio at some time future, to be born again is literally... Defined for us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 1. Where he says, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. That is the new birth defined. Quickened there means made alive. And I trust I don't have to say that dead means dead. We were dead as sinners in Adam naturally and the grace of God quickened us or made us alive. The bottom line is without going into a deep theological discussion here that which died when Adam and Eve sinned was passed on to all of Adam's posterity so that when we are born into the world as little babies, we are born into the world alive in the flesh, but dead in trespasses and sin. Dead under God, dead spiritually, alive physically, but dead spiritually. So we need another birth. And Nicodemus obviously didn't understand this because he asked one of the most preposterous questions that any adult adult human being could ever ask by asking about the possibility of a grown person going back into its mother's womb and be born again. But at the same time, I am not condemning his ignorance, but he's just manifesting that's all he knew. He only knew about birth from the physical standpoint. And Jesus, of course, as so often is always taking the physical and applying it in a spiritual. So Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. Nicodemus's mind can only process a natural birth. So Jesus is enlightening him. And we are enlightened from this passage of Scripture. So the absolute necessity of the new birth, Jesus said it three times in about four verses. Okay, I mean, I mean that's as absolute as the law of God written by the finger of God on Mount Sinai and handed to Moses. I mean, it is that set, that firm, that unchanging, and that absolute. It's always been that way. Everybody who has ever been saved had to be born again. Salvation is impossible without being born again. There is no way to be saved apart from the new birth. The new birth is very rarely the beginning or God's initiative in the experience of the sinner in being converted and saved. Now, there's an easy thing to remember here when it comes to the new birth and about going to heaven. If you've only been born once, then you're going to have to die twice. However, if you have been born twice, you'll only have to die minimum of once, and maybe not that. Amen. So what we're talking about here is if we all have a natural birth or we wouldn't exist, and if you have a spiritual death or spiritual birth, the new birth that we're talking about, then the only death you will experience will be the death of your body. But you will not experience what the Bible labels in the book of Revelation the second death, which is preemptive to eternity of punishment in hell. However, if you have only been born with a natural birth and then until that natural body you live in dies if you have not experienced another birth the new birth then you will die not only physically in your body but one day you will be resurrected to stand before the judgment of God at the great white throne judgment and then you will be pronounced upon the execution of the second death which we just talked about so two births one death one birth two deaths Jesus said reflecting again on the importance and necessity in verse 3 that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God and then in verse 5 he said you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God well seeing is understanding understanding Entering is something that you literally change your state of being. Out of the kingdom, into the kingdom in that regard. So the new birth, absolutely essential to seeing, understanding, or entering the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to be synonymous with believing in the king. And the kingdom of God is going to be synonymous with in the end being in heaven. Jesus had a spiritual kingdom when he was here on the earth first. When he comes again, he's going to have a literal, physical kingdom upon this earth. And then after that, there's going to be an eternal kingdom. But nevertheless, that is the kingdom in its various states, so to speak. And to be any part of that, you must be born again. Many things in Scripture concerning redemption and salvation are just like that. I mean, it is absolute. There's no alternatives. There's no debate about it. What did Jesus say about coming unto the Father or being saved? John 14 and 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is absolute. That is as black as white without any exceptions as what we read right here. Unless you're born again, and that really is the meaning of the word except. It is unless, same thing synonymous. You're born again, then you won't be in the kingdom. You won't be in heaven. You will be suffering the penalty of your sins in hell. So Jesus said, I am the way. And there is no other way. And we believe that. We don't believe there's many roads to heaven. Because Jesus said there's only one. And He's it. He emphasized that in the, in the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep in John 10, didn't He? When He said what? I am the door of the sheep. I mean, that's it. The only entrance into the kingdom. The only way to be saved. The only way to be coming into the presence of God Almighty and accepted is through his Son. Again, what was the last part of that? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. And that name is Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I've said it. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I'll say it again because it's true and because I rejoice in saying it. You get the name wrong, you lose. You lose. There's some people that preach that you can have the name wrong and still be saved. I don't believe that for a moment. I just quoted you the Scripture. There's no other name under heaven. Everybody in the Bible that we see that were saved knew what name it was. They knew what saved them. They knew who saved them they knew where salvation lay and it was in the person of god's only begotten son jesus christ so he is the door he is the way he is the shepherd he is the high priest and there is no other so many things are absolute and the new birth is certainly one just like those are and this new birth again as i hinted at earlier is God's initiative of bringing about salvation, conversion to a dead sinner. Let me say that again. The point you need to hear is God initiates the action. The sinner is dead. The sinner will not do anything to affect Desire or will or bring about his own salvation unless God initiates it. Whatever makes sense to you, starts the ball rolling, whatever. That's a poor way of putting it. The Bible is much more graphic in that which is dead is made alive. When something is alive, there can be some action. There can be something that happened to something that's alive, but nothing can happen to anything that's dead within itself. So God. Affects the sinner's deadness by making him alive as I said before that what's died in Adam can be and is made alive in sinners by God and if you're saved today your salvation and your conversion was brought about because God initiated a work a supernatural work in your soul and it was called the new birth being born again and when God begins that work, He never leaves it unfinished. You know, Philippians says, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And really, you know what that is? That's the whole Bible and the whole New Testament. <laughs> I mean, the whole Bible is about God determining, willing, decreeing, predestinating to do a work and then the performing of that work the whole time we live. That's what the whole Bible's about. It's called the plan of redemption for shortness. So God initiates that work. God has not, quote unquote, as some say, done all he can and left it up to the center. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches just the opposite. God starts it and God finishes it. And if God didn't make the sinner alive, then the sinner would be dead and unable and incapable to do anything. But God makes the sinner alive, and being alive, the sinner can then act and meet the demands of the gospel, which are what? Repent and believe to the salvation of the soul. The sinner that's dead can't do that. But when he has been made alive, he has been enabled from on high, supernaturally. And given the ability which we call graces to repent and faith to believe. Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should vote. So, no exceptions. Without the new birth, you perish. Verse 7, ye must, Jesus said. Jesus said it. God in human flesh said it. You must be born again. I mean, not to believe that in any degree is take away from the authority of the words of God. You must be born again. What is the means of this new birth? Well, this is not hard either, is it? The Bible makes it very clear. If you must be born again, if you can't enter the kingdom of God without the new birth, then how do you get the new birth? It is grievous and it's very hard to believe, but some men and individuals have taken upon themselves to tell us how to be born again. I find that absolutely amazing when the Bible does not tell us anything about how to be born again and when an understanding of the new birth tells us that's not our our realm anyway. That's God's business. But men have taught... Men tell sinners today how to be born again and write books about how to be born again. I must say it is nothing but a great and horrendous manifestation of their own ignorance of the new birth to do such a thing. Because the new birth is clearly shown here to be the work, the soul work, the complete work and the total work of God. There is no how to be born again. That is hypothetical. It's non-existent. That's fantasy. The Bible says in verse 5, Be born of the water and spirit. Verse 6, That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 7 or verse 8 says born of the Spirit. Three times the importance and necessity is emphasized and three times we're told that the new birth comes about by the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. So why would any of us think that we could tell anybody how to be born again? But there are soothsayers and false teachers and preachers out there that are doing that. Some even teach that when you believe, then you're born again. Nothing could be further from the truth. You talk, if there was ever a cart in front of a horse, theologically, that's the biggest blunder there ever has been. That when you, the sinner, believe, then you're made alive. How does that which dead believe? I mean, that's that's preposterous. I'm not going to spend any time talking about to you about what a dead corpse can't do. Everybody should know that. And a dead sinner, dead in trespasses and in, they have no faith. They cannot do nothing. It's dead. You're only alive by and through the Spirit of God. And then that which is alive can act. But sadly, I have to mention that. I want to mention one other thing and that is in verse 5 it mentions except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There are all kinds of teachings about what is meant by water there and I must refute a popular one that came about very early. And that is that the water there is baptism. It is not. It is not. You are not born again by baptism. Three times the Spirit is mentioned. One time water appears with the Spirit there in verse 5. And in fact, if it were baptism, then the order is wrong because you have baptism coming before the Spirit. It's ridiculous. But this is where uh, Catholicism has come up with baptism of infants and many other things and so have many others and have erred is interpreting that water in John 3 and 5 is indeed water baptism when it is not. When it is not. Well, you might ask then, okay, what is it? Well, I would not debate this with anybody unless they believed in water baptism. There are good possibilities for different things. And I'm just going to share them with you. One possibility, and a very simple one at that is, that the water in verse 5 is our natural watery birth. Now that may sound a little ridiculous but if you look at verse 4 Nicodemus just asked the question about how you could go back into the womb and be born again and we know that there is water in the placenta when a child lives, and that water is broken when a child is born. You know, it is a watery birth. Mammals are born into this world naturally in a watery birth. So again, I hope that doesn't sound ridiculous to you, but Nicodemus is talking about a watery natural birth in verse 4, and then Jesus mentions of water and the Spirit in verse 5, and then Jesus says in verse 6, he mentions A watery birth because he says that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. That's the natural fleshly birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is talking about a second birth. Jesus is talking about two births. If indeed that water birth is a natural birth, there is a physical birth, there is a spiritual birth, saying you've got to have two births okay second appears in verse four two births would fit in verse five and then Jesus elaborates again about two different kinds of births in verse six so anybody who holds that view I wouldn't I wouldn't jump on them and say well you don't know what you're talking about that would make sense in that regard one of the others a very popular belief on that is that the water there is the instrumentality of the gospel the instrumentality of the gospel in sinners being born again by the spirit of god and what would lead a person to embrace a thought like that or that interpretation would be 1st corinthians like 4:15 where paul would say there for though you have 10,000 instructors in christ you have not many fathers for in christ jesus i have begotten you through the gospel now paul could not bring about the new birth But Paul was an instrument in the salvation of those Christians at Corinth. And we realize that. The Bible plainly teaches that the preaching of the gospel is the ordained means by which God uses to save sinners. I mean, God determined that by the foolishness of preaching, sinners would be saved. Now, this is not in opposition or contradiction to the new birth. It is in association with the new birth. And the scripture that makes that very, very clear is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul says to them there, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Preachers, men, Christians, the church, the commission. That's the instrumental means by which sinners are saved. But all that we do individually, all the preaching Paul did, all that the church has ever done has never actually quickened anybody to life. Not apart from what I just read to you, the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in separating the two. I don't believe that the two are at odds with one another. I believe there is perfect harmony there. But there has been great and grievous errors come about in trying to separate the two, setting the two apart, etc., etc. Why not just accept what it says? God can do that. God can use a man to preach. The Holy Spirit obviously works and applies that word, quickens the heart. I mean, the bottom line is, it's put as simple as this. Lydia, heart was opened And she attended unto the things Paul spoke of. Look at all that's involved there. Paul's involved, the gospel's involved, God's involved. That's the way every sinner is saved. I mean, one way or another, there's a messenger, there's a message, and there's God doing that supernatural work in and through that person And the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And the power there, of course, of that word is, as we just read, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in that respect. So, let me read you another scripture kind of along those lines. James chapter 1 and verse 18, speaking here of God. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his Scripture, of his creatures, I'm sorry. And you know what begat means? It means to Father in that regard. Uh, you know, genealogies. We read about of Jesus and the genealogies in Genesis five. So and so begat so and so. And again, that's new life coming from existing life. And that's what we're talking about spiritually in the new birth. We're talking about God giving life where there was no life. So again, many think that 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 could be it. One other uh, uh, view on that is that this is simply the cleansing grace of the Spirit of God in regeneration. That it's the same thing. The water is more of a function of the Spirit In making alive. That as surely as the Spirit makes alive or quickens, it does a cleansing. And this comes from an Old Testament verse which I certainly believe Jesus is referring to this verse when he includes water and the Spirit in his narrative with Nicodemus. And that's in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And notice the words as well as the order here. Speaking of Israel, he says in verse uh, 24, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And that is as good an Old Testament definition of the new birth as anywhere I could point you to. And again I say, let me ask you, pay attention, where is the will of the sinner in those verses? Do you see it? Is it there? Is there any reference to, and if you will, it to be so? In the verses I just read to you, all we read about is God's sovereignty. In what I call, oftentimes, the grace of God is what? God doing all of the doing and that's exactly what happens in the new birth you don't have to consent to anything to have the new birth God does this and we'll bring this out in the next point but that was the third and last uh, thing I wanted to say to you about water and the spirit that it is simply the referring to the same thing in the cleansing effect of the spirit uh, I believe there's a verse in uh, let me see here that will reflect that in First Peter. Uh, it complements that. Uh, let me read verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the spirits unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, third point we want to look at is the mystery of the new birth. And indeed, it is mysterious. Mysterious as well as synonymous. And before we proceed on to what Jesus said about that, particularly in verse 8, Let's pause a minute and contemplate a natural birth before we launch into the spiritual birth. And you know, a birth of any kind, new life, is again, not so mysterious maybe, but indeed it is as it is miraculous. Is it not? I mean, mean, if you've ever watched an animal be born, much less a baby being born, another human being, Coming into this, again, miraculous. God designed that reproductive process. And the more we learn about, the more miraculous it becomes. We live in an age where video and different things and technological advances and medicine and things allow us to know more, see more about what's going on with that new child, From the time of conception in a woman's womb until the time it's delivered. And it is absolutely amazing. Amazing. I know of one individual uh, whose conversion, he attests to that very thing. That God used the miracle of conception and reproduction and how that child grows in the womb to convert him. To reveal himself to him. Some of you know would know the same person I'm talking about. It is miraculous. It is mysterious. It is of God. It is supernatural. How those cells multiply and form a child and in a matter of a few weeks, there's a little bitty heart beating it. It's just absolutely amazing. Well, I say all that to say this. When we embrace the miraculous, mysterious work and wisdom of God in a natural birth, Then when we come to the spiritual birth, we just got to step up a little bit higher because it's even more miraculous and certainly more mysterious. So both deserve our consideration. But Jesus shows us the mystery of it and yet he reveals to us the truth of it and the miracle of it. When he says that the Holy Spirit's work In effecting the new birth is like the wind. Now that leaves us dumbfounded, don't it? You know, a little child might say that they understand the wind. But nobody that's lived on planet earth very long can admit honestly they understand the wind. And it don't matter how long you would live and how much you would learn, you'll never understand the wind. The Bible makes that clear about the the wind and its circuits, and, and God's in control of those, but we don't. But the Holy Spirit is compared to the wind. Have you ever seen the wind? Let me assure you, you have not. You have seen things in the wind, and you have seen the effect of the wind, but you've never really seen the wind. The wind is an invisible thing. In fact, if we were going to define the wind, we would probably want to start by saying it is an invisible force. Is it air movement? Yeah. Do you see air? No. You have to put something in air to see the movement of air. You see what I'm saying? So, we start with the invisibility of it. And when something's where we can't see it, then again, it's pretty mysterious to us, isn't it? You know, it's incomprehensible in that regard. What about the wind? Well, isn't it strange when it blows? Where it can blow? Think about why it would blow there and how it blows there. I mean, if you've ever paid any attention at all outside, you can be standing in a forest, as many of us have many times, or standing in your yard, and you could have a half a dozen trees there, and there may be 11 of them moving and one in the middle is not showing a leaf. I mean, I, is, have, you get my drift. The wind is that mysterious. You've seen it, I've seen it, and we say, how can it be blowing all around, and yet that one is unaffected? I mean, I see it. It's everywhere. And yet, that there's not a leaf on that one moving. How can that be? That's the mystery of the wind. It can go up. It can go down. It can go in a circle. It can reverse itself in a moment at a time. It can be everywhere it wants and it can be nowhere it wants. The mystery of the wind. This is the comparison of the Spirit of God. Of the new birth. You can't predict it. It's an invisible work of God, but it's a sure work of God. If you look at those pictures of the hurricane that hit Florida, you don't have to, anybody have to tell you or convince you that there was a big wind, right? People felt it. We see the effect that it left behind, but nobody saw the wind itself. Have you ever seen a hurricane? What do we really see in a hurricane? What do we really see in a tornado? You know, it's manifested by things. But it itself is that invisible force or power in it. Well, the work of the Spirit and all those things that I just mentioned concerning the wind that we can't answer and don't know nothing about, the Bible tells us about the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God doesn't randomly save people many times when we observe the wind it seems to blow randomly and we say it's just blowing at random it's not blowing one direction because we don't understand it but actually it's blowing exactly where God wants it to blow at that moment and the next moment it'll blow exactly where he wants to be if it's 180 degrees different we just lack of our understanding we don't understand it so it is with the new birth sinners aren't saved by accident or at random The Spirit of God just don't swoop in here like a hawk and save a sinner at random, okay? No, it's all planned and purposed by God from eternity. We read that clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, familiar passage, verse 4 according that he has chosen us in him from the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So it starts with God's choosing, election. God chooses those whom will be saved. They're referred to in the Bible as the elect, as the sheep, as his people in that regard. And in verse 5, we see the thing mentioned there that takes us to a birth, predestinated to the adoption of children. If we're the children of God, we had to be born again spiritually, just like all our children were born into the world, else they wouldn't be here or they wouldn't have been alive. So, chosen of God, predestinated of God to be heirs of God as well as adopted sons. Verse 11, heirs. So, while the new birth is an invisible work of God, the Holy Spirit, like the wind, goes where it goes, to whom it goes, how it goes, when it goes, and what it does when it goes, is all decreed of God. All decreed of God. Think about that. Think about that. And this is the mystery. Spurgeon and others have said, you know, it's the same wind, but it may blow upon sinners differently. Let's suppose you were a feather. It didn't take much of a puff of wind to knock you off your feet when God saved you, did you? But let's suppose you were a bull-headed, resistant, stubborn sinner and you were an oak. Take a lot of wind, put down a big rooted oak tree. But guess what? They ain't an oak tree standing God can't put down. And they ain't a sinner God can't save. So I'm not denying the degree of the force of the wind was the same on all of us. But I am saying when God saved you, it was appointed from everlasting The Spirit of God didn't come upon you at that time and that place through that man or that message by accident. No, it was all appointed to God. As surely as your natural birth was appointed, so was your spiritual birth. And I say this, that we might look back and appreciate and thank and praise God. God, you worked all that out. God, you brought me in contact with the gospel. You revealed your Son unto me. You revealed my sin unto me at that time in that place by that power of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice evermore for God doing that. I mentioned to you, think about it. When Lydia was saved in Acts 16, the Bible says Paul went out to the riverbank on a Sabbath day where women were wont to gather for a prayer meeting what does the Bible say about the success or effectiveness of Paul's preaching nothing (laughs) nothing except that it says there was a woman named Lydia whose heart the Lord opened I don't know if anybody else was saved or not but the Bible's testimony is that seems to be the only one her heart was circumcised. It was opened up. The deaf ears became open that she heard what Paul said spiritually. The when, the where, the how, all right there. And again, if you're a child of God, you're no different. No different whatsoever. Right down to the millisecond. God orchestrated it all. God executed it all. None of it was an accident. God don't have accidents. And let me tell you, God don't leave things in men's hands so accidents can happen. There are no accidents with God. Can I give you another quickly? Our time is, well, raced away from us. A man named Saul on the Damascus Road. A group of companions, an entourage traveling with him, and Jesus appears. Saul of Tarsus is saved. He hears the Son of God speak directly to him. The others hear something that they don't know what it is. That's how the new birth is affected. That's why, like the wind, one tree can be affected and the rest of them stand still or vice versa. That's the mystery of the Spirit of God. You could preach to a crowd of 10,000 and there might be one saved, there might be none saved, there might be 10,000 saved. That's all the mystery of the Spirit of God whose heart will be opened the wind is only known by its effect how can you know if you've been born again somebody might ask you'll only know by the effect and be careful what that effect is because many people have been told they've been born again because they were in a church service and they just felt something do not trust your feelings salvation is not a feeling Nowhere in Scripture does it say salvation is a feeling. Well, I just felt a calm come over me. Well, that could be in the devil sticking a pacifier in your mouth. Literally. Again, there are people out there telling you what to do to be born again. That's not of God. That's not the Spirit of God. The Bible is not a how-to book on how to be born again. The Bible is a how-to of how to be saved. And that's repent and believe the gospel. I'm always suspicious when people tell me that they just felt something. Or they just had a peace or a calmness or whatever. You know, you need a piece of chocolate and feel that. You know what I mean? I mean, you can do all kinds of things and have a nice, warm, cozy feeling. That's not salvation. Well, I just believe what the minister said. The devils believe that. It's not about feelings. Let me tell you, there's something before believing. You know what it is? Repenting. Jesus said it. He said it in another place. Except you repent. Unless you repent, you won't be saved. It's mandatory. You can't quote unquote just believe. That don't cut it. That's half of it, and that's the second half, and you can't even have the second half unless you got the first half. Let me make this quick. Let me tell you what happens when the Holy Spirit causes someone to be born again, quickens them and makes them alive. You know what the first thing happens is? It's not a peace. It's not a peaceful, easy feeling. That quickening makes you alive to your sin. And instead of a calm, there's a storm. And if you hadn't had a storm, then don't trust your calm. Let me give you an example. Philippian Jader, what must I do to be saved? He was in the midst of a storm. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was perishing. He was about to take his own life and could have. The Holy Spirit, when it quickens a dead sinner, it quickens that sinner alive to God's law. And what do we say? Just like the prophets and others. I'm an unclean thing. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I'm perishing. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit quickens a dead sinner. The storm comes first. The conviction of sin, the acknowledgment that I'm guilty and perishing and justly so. Then, after that comes come In fact, let me leave this with you. I'm going to read that. Matter of fact, you remember when they were all on the boat, Jesus and His disciples, and Jesus went to sleep, and the storm came up. Let me read this. It's in Luke eight, verse twenty three and twenty four, and then I'm done. Bear with me. As they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came a storm and of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy or perishing, danger of perishing. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose, rebuked the wind, the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. That, in a nutshell, is what I'm talking about the new birth. When the new birth comes and quickens a sinner, they're quickened first of all to their sin, not to Jesus. They're not not—they're not made alive to an awareness of Jesus first. They're made alive to an awareness of your sin and of the storm and of the hopelessness and of exactly this. And let me tell you today, if you claim to be a child of God and you hadn't done what these disciples did, you hadn't come to Jesus with a guilty conscience and feeling like you were perishing and in jeopardy, then you're probably not saved. Because Jesus came for sinners who were in danger of perishing. He said it Himself. I love this. They are in a state of perishing. There is a storm. And if there's ever been a storm in your soul, the Holy Spirit brought it. And then what do you do? You come to Jesus. I'm not, la- I'm not making fun about the quote-unquote come-to-Jesus moment, but that's when we come to Jesus is when we can't solve the problem by ourselves and we cry out God be merciful to me a sinner and then you know what comes I love this can you just picture this if you're saved by grace this is what happened master master I perish what what does Jesus always do when sinners come to him like that he arises rebukes or forgives us of the penalty of our sin of the raging that's going on within our soul and gives us what Complete calm. Now, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is salvation. And it is the new birth that affects and brings about our conversion. And I don't know how to say it any better, so I'm just not gonna say any more. God bless sister, you're hearing. <laughs>